At the end of last story, I left you with Tanvir and I cycling across Bangladesh on our way to Dakar. And across two days, we got to a place called Gopal Ganj, which means the town of Gopal, who was a Bangladeshi guy. And we stayed with a friend of Tanvir, a guy called Ro, or as Tanvir called him, Robro. And this was in a little village outside of Gopal Ganj. And we reached his house. Coming off this small country road, there was another tendril of a road that we followed for about three minutes or so on the bike. It got narrower and narrower, and there was a small bridge that rose quite steeply up and then going over a glorified puddle at this point with a boat at the bottom of it and then down the other side and then we had to take another turning which turned into a dirt track by the schoolhouse and for about a hundred meters we were pushing the bike along a sandy track to reach the set of houses that belonged to Rose family and there was Rose parents his cousins his aunties his second cousins there were probably about five or six houses together in a cluster and they all belonged to rose family and they had been there for generations i mean literally at least a hundred years if not more and what was interesting here to me is that they're actually a hindu family and this was actually a more um hindu area which although statistically one knows that there are Hindus also in Bangladesh. It was interesting just to to be in that that area and hear the amazing kind of ululations. It sounds like the most amazing trilling bird uh, at prayer time as they were um, praying uh, to the to the gods in the in the shrine in the house. And of course, in these areas, you do see women without head coverings, seemingly a little bit more prominent and, to use a perhaps overused word, you know, empowered around and about in, in the village. So we spent overnight with Robro's family and in the morning we were joined by Nader. Now Nader is from Dhaka, she, her family actually came from Persia, well, Iran, but at the time of the revolution, her family fled. And instead of going to Pakistan, which is where a lot of Iranians went and was swamped by applications, they went to this new country, relatively new country called Bangladesh. And it was a lot easier to get uh, admission into Bangladesh at this point. And I guess 10 or 20 years later, they got Bangladeshi citizenship. So Nader grew up, spent all her life in Bangladesh, growing up in Silet, speaks Bangla, and she rocked up. Having done a gig the previous night, beautiful voice, beautiful singer, she rocked up at about five o'clock in the morning, having traveled through the night to cycle with us for the two days from Gopalganj in to Dakar. And after about three hours sleep, 
Nader was up, we were up and ready to go. And uh, Nader was not dressed like I suppose the majority of women that I had seen up to that point, wearing leggings, a light jumper, dyed hair, open. And so very coming from, a, probably, I would imagine, a very different kind of socioeconomic background and sort of level of age, education and freedom and something that I saw when I came to certain bits of Dakar that this segment of Bangladeshi society it also exists but it is fair to say I think it's a much much smaller percentage and going through villages where you just see well very few women and the women that you do see are in in burqas and niqabs you realize that there is um, a very strong vein of pretty conservative Islam in Bangladesh as well but one that at this point doesn't swamp society but having talked with a a few people in the diplomatic circle it it is a latent concern and one of the things that happened in 2016 or one a defining event that happened in 2016 was a terrorist attack in the diplomatic area and that really prompted the government Bangladeshi government to crack down on religious extremist groups in Bangladesh but that threat is sort of still somewhere beneath the surface. I digress. We, that day, were going to do about 80 kilometres to a place called Sharitpur. And given that NATO travelled overnight, and given that we just fancied a relaxed start and we were in this wonderful village, we... We took a little bit of time over breakfast and Robro's family, well, his mum and his sister specifically, had cooked us for our breakfast that morning three different types of fish and big, big plate of rice. And that had been freshly prepared this morning. The fish had been you know, caught and you know, um, scaled and skinned and filleted from probably about 5 a.m. that morning so a huge amount of work had gone into to feeding us and giving us a wonderful breakfast and we we're peeling off with your hands of course the fish these are small fish the length of about you know, three or four inches and you'd pull away the the flesh and then peel off the bones in the middle bit and then you'd sort of mix it all together with the rice and then pop it in your mouth so we started at about 11 o'clock in the afternoon, in the, in the morning, 11 o'clock in the morning. And Nada had brought her bike and we decided that we would, Nada would actually ride on the tandem with me and Tanvir would ride Nada's bike. And we made our way very happily in a convoy, stopping for tea. Tanvir got his beard trimmed at this roadside wooden shack barber place as we were sipping tea everyone was very friendly we saw everyone was smiling at us everyone was very curious and we were making good progress towards Sharitpur. now at about two o'clock in the afternoon i was chatting with nada on the back of the bike and she said oh you do know there's like this half marathon that's going on tomorrow morning in dakar 
And I'd been like vaguely aware of it because Sophie, who I'm staying with right now, works at the British High Commission. She had told me in advance that she was doing this on Friday morning, which also happened to be my birthday. And I had essentially discounted this as a possibility because it was going to be too difficult to cover that much distance to get across Bangladesh. It would be very pressured. So I assumed that I wasn't going to do it. But when Nader said, there's this half marathon that's happening tomorrow morning, that little spark grew inside of me, that little bit of interest, and I just couldn't let go of this idea of, like, wouldn't it be cool to cycle today to Dakar to do two days in one and start my time in Dakar, start my birthday with a half marathon? That just sounds like a cool idea. And again, like last week's story, this is about being hungry for it. And the idea of setting yourself a challenge being very motivating and giving you a lot of purpose. And I said to Nada, well, do you think it might be possible? And she said, well, yeah, we could, we could investigate and see see if we can get you a, a bib number at short notice. And I was like, well, I'm not quite sure I want to do it. And so she said, well, you know, think on it a bit. About 10 minutes later, I was like, yes, I want to do this. This would be really great. But of course, that would be quite a big change in our plans. We'd already covered about 60 kilometers that day. We only had 20 more kilometers to do. And this proposal would leave us with another 110 kilometers from this point. However, Tanvir was more than up for the challenge. He was like, yeah, I love the idea. Nader, at this point, signed up to it wholeheartedly, though I think later down the line, when the, the tandem seat took its toll, uh, was, was less keen on this decision. And I should say that the tandem's back seat has been the bane of quite a few joiners. So Nader was not alone in this at all. It is a reputed to be a fairly uncomfortable seat, though not everyone finds it. So, so I said, I just can't let go of this idea. I just love the idea of having this really big cycle ride today, this big challenge to get to Dakar, and then the following morning at uh, 5.45, starting this half marathon. And so we changed course. We set our path for the ferry that would take us across the Padma River, which is also called the Ganges. It's the Ganges in India. And then when it comes through Bangladesh, it turns into the Padma River. And it's the main river that sort of separates where we were from Dakar itself. We had about 50 kilometers to get to that river and then another 50 kilometers on the other side to get into Dakar. And as we were cycling towards the Padma River, Nader was making all sorts of calls to try and get me a race number, a bib number, which was incredible because there would have been no, no chance of me doing this race if I'd been by myself. And Nader was calling her friends and she's very plugged into the exercise community in Dakar. And she even ended up on the phone to the chief financial officer of Beeman Airlines, which is the Bangladeshi national carrier who was sponsoring the race to see if they could get me 
a place at short notice. And just as we were about to reach the ferry, we got the news, and this is about three hours later, and lots of phone calls back and forth and false hopes and um, dashed hopes that, yes, Luke Luke could have a race number and um, Luke could race the next morning. So we got to where the ferry was. We've been following it on Google Maps. And when we got there, it was just getting dark. The sun had set and we found that this place that we thought the ferry was, it was just like a dusty car park with some buses and some food stalls. And we had missed the last ferry from that place because in this place, they only operated in daylight hours. Bizarrely, no one had seemed to to know that and I'd sort of set course for the only ferry place I'd known and everyone was like, yeah, that'll be fine. But then we found out there was a 24-hour ferry service that was another 10 kilometres away. And by this point, we were really, I was really tired anyway. And it was, it had just got dark and we had been cycling pretty solidly for, what, five, six hours. And then we had another 10 kilometres to do to get to this ferry. And we ended up going on the wrong lane of this new highway that's being built all the way from Dakar to the south of Bangladesh. And that new highway includes a bridge that crosses the Padma River that's going to basically revolutionise transport. Because as I we later found out, the ferry system is not the most efficient thing in the world. And actually this bridge that's being built is actually being built by a Russian company, which also connected Crimea with mainland Russia. So they've got experience of building long bridges across large bodies of water. We're about half seven in the evening when we arrived at the 24-hour ferry terminal, which, okay, ferry terminal is a, gives you the wrong impression. It's a road lined by food stalls and you know, places that you can get some water or whatever, and it just goes down on there's a sort of steep dirt track that leads you down to the water's edge. There's a pontoon, and that's it. We were very lucky that as we arrived, we could just see the ferry approaching from a few hundred meters away, so we'd got the timing there perfectly. And when the ferry docked, basically all hell broke loose. The cars and the motorbikes just sped off like they were you know, bat out of hell, powering up this steep earth bank and just sort of heading off into the night. And then it came the turn for the trucks to get out of the ferry. And there was this one truck that was piled up almost like a, a, a skyscraper with bricks. So there's this huge load that like towered over the truck cab. And everyone was beeping at this truck because it was not going. It was it was blocking everyone else and it was not going. And we were wondering why. And then the the truck just floored it and like just sped across the ferry, across the pontoon and then up the steep dirt slope. And then I realised why it had been so 
hesitant and sort of preparing itself and then nailing it because with such a heavy load it was massively struggling to get up this steep dirt road it nearly got all the way to the top before it stalled and then there was this collection of people just putting a brick behind the back wheel the guy tries to like restart the truck tries to get it up the hill Everyone is like waiting for this truck to get out the way. And three minutes pass, four minutes pass, five minutes passes. This guy continually tries to restart the truck and get it up this final bit of the hill. Until, and I don't know why this didn't happen initially, a whole crowd of people basically get behind the truck and they start pushing it. And eventually it gets over the lip of the hill, it goes away, and the ferry empties out. And then it was our turn to come on. And there's literally a swarm of motorbikes, probably about 40 or 50 motorbikes that are waiting. And it was supposed to be, supposed to be done in an orderly fashion. And there was a guy who was there saying, you know, like one at a time. But all of that went out the window. As soon as one bike went, all the bikes just descended like a swarm of bees on the ferry, just zooming in there, finding every available gap. It, it was pretty chaotic. The ferry journey itself was pretty calm and peaceful. We could just watch the sky, which was full of beautiful stars. You could see, like, so many stars. There was very little natural light. And at about half nine, we arrived on the other side, and we still had 50 kilometres to go. And usually at this point, I've had dinner, and I'm thinking about bed, but when you've got that challenge in front of you, there's something that keeps you going and you realise you can't take your foot off the pedal. You've got to you've got to you've got to push keep pushing on. And on this far side, we'd left behind the green, lush, rural Bangladesh, and we are now in like dusty highway zone and my eyes were getting sort of filled with grit and my contacts were playing out, so I took those out, had my glasses in. And we had the long slog, probably three hours of riding ahead of us to get into Dakar. And that's the time where you just have to kind of switch off a bit and like listen to music or podcasts and just plug away at it. And that's, that's more or less what we did until we got into the centre of Dakar, where we found the traffic like nothing else I'd experienced. Yes, it was chaotic, but what stood out most of all was that the traffic jams were solid. And by that, I mean, we didn't move for 10 minutes at all. And every single available gap in this traffic jam, and you've got huge lorries that were filling most of the road. And then you've got motorbikes that are trying to sort of weave their way between all of the gaps until all the gaps are filled. And then there's literally nowhere that you can go. So we were stuck. It was dark. It was filled with fumes. It was filled with dust. And we were in the most solid traffic jam I've ever been in. So to cross the centre of Dakar at about 11.30 at night was a pretty tough experience. 
eventually we negotiated it. I only had my panniers clipped by one tuk-tuk, which has kind of written them off, but we survived and we managed to get to our destination in a place called Gulshan area, which means sort of flower garden in a kind of slightly more northern part of Dakar, which also happens to be where all the embassies are located and not that far from where the half marathon was happening the next morning. So after such a long time on the road, after a change of plan, we we arrived at Gulshan at about quarter past midnight, so 15 minutes into my birthday. And what a way to start kick things off on my birthday to have achieved something that we didn't really think was even sort of plausible at the beginning of the day to have a last minute change of plan to then add on an extra 110 k's and to keep going and then at the end of it yes to reach Dakar to be successful and have done something that was a real challenge and a real adventure and something that I think Tanvir, Nader and I we're all going to remember that as as a as a big experience and I think that's something that's interesting of when yes we could have done it in two days and it would have been easier and it would have just been normal and there wouldn't have been nearly so memorable but having set ourselves a big challenge we've also created something which is a really strong memory so we got in and I think I got to bed at about one o'clock in the morning I had to be up at four o'clock in the morning so after a heady three hours sleep I got back up and we headed out to the half marathon and it was the most beautiful way to start a time in Dakar, watching the red sun rising up above the lake with a community of 500 runners showing me a totally different side of Dakar from the gridlocked, dusty traffic that I'd experienced the night before or earlier that morning. And so I think that's kind of what being hungry for it can give you. It can give you really powerful experiences. It can give you a lot of motivation and it can give you memories.